You may have perhaps heard the old objection to the Bible's teaching on sexual morality that goes something like this. The Bible's teaching on sex is a product of its time. The culture that the Bible's authors lived in, well, they were repressed, they were ignorant, perhaps they were a bit bigoted even. And so the Bible's teaching reflects a culture in which it was written. The implication is that if the Bible were written today in a more progressive culture like ours, where the authors had been aware of the diversity of sexual practice around the world, well, then it would reflect a much more kind of open-minded sort of ethic. As it is, though, modern people like us, we should probably just lay what it has to say to one side. It's, it's outdated. I guess that's what a lot of non-Christians would say about what the Bible teaches on sex. I guess that's what uh, quite a lot of Christians in the church might say about it. But I want to suggest to you that that narrative about the origin of the Bible's teaching on sex is completely wrong. Because it misunderstands the history. It, it misunderstands who God is. It misunderstands what our bodies are made for. Harvard University Press published a book a few years back, I think 2013, by a historian named Kyle Harper, and he called this book uh, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. Sounds like a real page-turner, doesn't it? Right? This is a book you can't wait to get your hands on. But it is a very interesting book, because it shows that from the very beginning, the Christian sexual ethic, the Christian attitude towards sex, was completely different to the culture around it. Uh, using Roman documents from the realms of philosophy, of, of romantic literature, of medicine, of law, drawing together his research on slavery and sex trafficking in Rome, he, Harper documents how the sexual ethic of um, ancient Roman culture was, how it was, and then what it became as Christianity revolutionized the empire. Now, he wrote a much briefer essay, which you can Google and find. It's called The First Sexual Revolution. I, I recommend you go away and look at it. It's worth a read. But one reviewer summarized his book's contents like this. They said, Romans did not wrestle with the morality of sex outside of marriage or of sexual activity between persons of the same sex. Rather, they wrestled with what was honorable for a freeborn man or a freeborn woman. It was acceptable for a freeborn man to have sex with slaves, with prostitutes, and boys under certain conditions, so long as these things were done in moderation. But a freeborn man must never, uh, must always act as a man. It was shameful for him to play the passive role in sex. The restrictions on free women, on the other hand, were much tighter. Women were expected to marry at a very young age and to produce children for their husbands and for society. To commit adultery was to violate a respectable woman and so to sin against her husband. To do so was also without excuse because any man was free to have sex with slaves and prostitutes at will. Underlying that double standard was a lucrative and omnipresent Roman sex trade, which itself was inseparable from the Roman system of slavery. The masses of slaves and prostitutes and other dishonorable persons had no claim to honor and thus no entitlement to sexual morality. 
Slaves, especially girls and women, were subjected to untrammeled sexual abuse. They were utterly without social or legal protection. The ubiquity of slaves meant pervasive sexual availability. Slaves played something of the role that self-pleasure has played in most cultures. Prostitutes stalked the streets, taverns, inns, and baths, and they were notorious dens of venal sex. Brothels were visible everywhere. When Christianity emerged in the Roman Empire during the first century, it did so as a persecuted minority, known for its distinctive sexual ethic. This is still the reviewer. Harper argues, in fact, that it was their view of sex that anything, uh, that their view of sex more than anything else that distinguished Christians in the ancient world. For Christians, sex lay at the heart of what it meant to be a free person destined for communion with God. And Christians called all people, whatever their status or gender, to lives of sexual purity. It was the Christian sexual ethic, according to uh, this historian, which completely transformed the world, such that we shudder to think of the Roman world before this ethic took hold. We shudder to even imagine what it would be like to living there. And yet that was what was appropriate for upstanding members of Roman society. And in our reading this morning, we come to one of the key passages of the New Testament about the Christian uh, sexual ethic, the thing that brought about the sexual revolution in the ancient world. And here we find not only commands to observe, we do find commands, flee from sexual immorality, says Paul, but we also find the rationale for a different understanding of our bodies, of who God is, of what we're meant for. We heard last week that the definition of holiness is being set apart in service to God. And we saw that the church is called to be a holy community, which does not simply tolerate and ignore sin in the lives of Christians, but where Christians are, are called to repentance and faith, or, if necessary, excluded, uh, in the hopes that they might repent. Because according to Paul, unless the church is holy, God's spirit and, and the power of God will not dwell in a church. And this week, as Paul continues his argument, he narrows down his focus from that corporate body of the church to our individual bodies as, as people. Uh, and he says that what we do with our bodies, or what we do with slaves' bodies, or, or women's bodies, or, or children's bodies. Well, that really matters. It, it really matters because, for the Christian, the human body is holy, according to Paul. Our bodies are set apart to serve God, and to misuse or abuse them is to profane that which is holy. So from this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, I want to show you why your body is holy and show you how that should shape the way you live. So we'll look at this passage in three sections. The first is this. The human body is holy and eternal, so you should use it, or so how you use it is of profound significance. The human body is holy and eternal, so how you use it is profoundly significant. If you were here last week, you'll remember that at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul is addressing a 
a particularly egregious example of porneia, or sexual immorality, that's the Greek word for it, within the Corinthian church. A man had his father's wife, according to Paul. And he was strongly warning the church that they must deal with this sin in their midst. They can't just go on ignoring it and, and allowing it. But now in chapter 6, he begins to unpick the wrong thinking that may have led this couple down that path and maybe leading others down the wrong path. And he begins by taking issue with some of the popular slogans of the day, which may well have been used to justify that sort of behavior. Verse 12 says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. In the mouth of the Corinthian church, maybe, will they believe themselves to be so wise, so, so spiritually powerful? Maybe these, uh, these sayings, everything is permissible for me, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Maybe these were theological statements. Hearing that through Christ they had been reconciled to God... Well, some were perhaps claiming that they no longer needed to worry about things like sin, backwards notions like that. Well, we've been forgiven. We've been justified. We, we've been uh, brought together with God. Why do we have to worry about sin anymore? Everything is permissible for me. And just as food is a kind of transient and inconsequential physical need, you know, you, you eat, it's digested, and it goes. Well, so they thought their physical bodies were transient and inconsequential. So with these slogans, they were perhaps saying, you know, we can do what we like because sin no longer matters. And even so, it makes no difference how you live in your bodies. God's going to destroy the physical and save the spiritual. But Paul challenges that. He challenges it right at the starting point, urging them, don't think in terms of what is permissible for you. Think of in terms of what is beneficial for you. And for something to be beneficial or not beneficial, there must be some sort of purpose for it. Either something is helping you achieve your purpose, or it's not. And for physical bodies to matter more than food, which is eaten, digested, and expelled, well, there must be some kind of lasting importance to them. Which is precisely what Paul goes on to explain. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Our bodies have been made with a purpose. They're distinctly for the Lord. They're set apart from all the rest of creation in order to serve the Lord. In other words, our bodies are holy. Therefore, how we use our bodies, or use the bodies of others, can either be more or less beneficial to that created purpose that they've been given, of serving the Lord. And so far from being a disposable item, our bodies are the only thing that you will see in all of creation that are eternal. Your body is eternal. When, when Christ our Lord was raised from the dead by God, the gospel accounts say that he ate barbecued fish on the beach with his friends. They say he was seen and, and heard, and he, he carried on conversations. His friends embraced him 
and touched the wounds in his hands and in his side. It was a physical body that the raised Christ had. His body uh, was physical, and Paul says, just as the Father raised Christ's physical body, the Father will raise our physical bodies as well. So if my body and your body and every human body on earth is made to serve the Lord, how dare we treat it lightly? How dare I misuse it in my, to, to serve my own selfish desires rather than to, to see that it serves the purpose it was created for, to serve the Lord? And if it's eternal, how can I simply use and abuse and dispose of somebody's, somebody else's body when I tire of it? You know, as someone might do in an encounter with a prostitute, as Paul is saying, or in a marital affair, or a summer fling, or through a pornographic video. You know, that would be to profane what is holy and to dispose of what is eternal. And that's why Paul says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It works against what the body is for. It's meant for the Lord, and we deprive him of what's rightly his when we use and misuse our bodies. And I guess it's worth saying in the current climate of, uh, of protest and police brutality, where bricks are thrown and, and Molotov cocktails are thrown with an utter disregard for bodies on the other side, and where a flurry of batons are rained down on those who have been captured, I think we could legitimately add, the body is not made for violence. How dare we treat what is holy and eternal as something to be burned or beaten, choked or shot? The body of your enemy is eternal, and so every wrong you commit against the body of your enemy is an eternal wrong, has an eternal consequence. Whether you're held accountable by an independent inquiry or not, it's wrong. You're profaning what is holy. And I guess you could say the same sorts of things about drunkenness, profaning what is holy, about gluttony, damaging what is eternal, about all the ways that we, we harm ourselves or others. And it's this theology of the body that completely transformed ancient Roman culture, and which continues to transform every culture where the gospel is preached and heard and accepted. You know, when every human body is considered to have God-given value, well then the institution of slavery cannot stand. The oppression of women cannot be defended. The abuse of children cannot be accepted. Cultures which formerly disposed of handicapped infants by exposure in the wilderness, when the gospel takes hold in those cultures, people begin to care for the holy and eternal bodies of those weaker beings, those weaker people. Societies where women and children are routinely seen as lesser than men, and where they're routinely preyed upon by men. Well, they're transformed by Christianity into cultures which defend the God-given dignity of women and children. And look out for those who can't look out for themselves. That's what this 
theology of the body does. Uh, Christians have always been weird about sex, but the result of that weirdness is something glorious, isn't it? Secondly, a Christian body is a member of Christ. So what you do with it reflects on him. In addition to what's true for every human body on earth, that there are some things that are uniquely true for Christian bodies. Namely, that by faith our bodies become part of Christ's body, the church. Verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And because Christians are incorporated into Christ's body by faith, it is uniquely the case that when we say or when we do something as a Christian, it reflects on the Christ to whom we've been united. So if I claim to be a Christian and yet I make a habit of lying, well then I'm showing others that Christ himself is dishonest. I've been joined to Christ, Christ is a liar. And if, as a professing Christian, I'm violent and abusive towards other, I blaspheme Christ by portraying him as a violent and abusive Lord, because what I do, as one joined to him, reflects on him. In the same way, according to Paul, when a Christian engages in sexual immorality, they deny the truth about Christ. In verse 16, Paul quotes one of Scripture's foundational texts on marriage, Genesis 2. Uh, verse 24, he says, therefore, which says this in, in the fuller quotation, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that one flesh refers to both the uh, physical sexual union, but also to an emotional, a spiritual kind of union. And the only authorized context for that kind of one flesh union, according to the scriptures, is a marriage publicly recognized marriage between one man and one woman. It's public, it's permanent, it's exclusive, and that, that nature of the marriage covenant between complementary but different individuals is designed to be a living illustration of what Christ is like with his church, the bringing together of two into one. It's meant to be a picture to the whole world of the kind of intimacy and, and love and faithfulness and commitment that Jesus shows to his people and that his people then show back to Christ. But the Christian who engages in prostitution or indeed in any kind of sexual relationship that isn't within the bounds of a marriage between a husband and wife, well, they blaspheme Christ. He or she says with their body that Christ is not faithful to his people, but uses his people when it's convenient to him. He or she says that Christ is not intimately uh, loving towards his church, but simply seeks his own satisfaction at the expense of others. 
he or she says that Christ is not publicly committed to his people for eternity, but will stay with them until something better comes along. Furthermore, they show that the church does not enter into a permanent relationship with Christ, but is free to prostitute itself to whichever gods will offer the, the highest payouts. You know, if I can get good luck from that god, I'll worship him. If I can uh, have abundant crops from that god, I'll worship them. You know, in the Old Testament and the New, sexual immorality is always and everywhere linked with idolatry. They go hand in hand. It is seen as both the cause and the effect, the cause and the effect of worshiping uh, something other than the true God. Because according to the scriptures, how we use and misuse our bodies shows what kind of God we serve. Despite our self-justifications, it's it's not possible to both believe the truth about God and yet persistently and unrepentantly act in a way that denies that truth about God. It's not possible. Christians have been united to the Lord in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, and therefore all that we do in our lives, especially in our sex lives, either it tells the truth about Christ or it blasphemes against Christ. Because what we truly believe is borne out in the way we live. So those first two things, the, the human body is holy and eternal, so how you use it is profoundly significant. A Christian's body is a member of Christ, so what you do with it reflects on him. And then thirdly, your body is not your own, so use it to honor its true owner. You know, finally, you know, knowing that our bodies are holy and eternal, knowing that what we do reflects on Christ, how should we live? Paul concludes with a, a final appeal in verses 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality, he says in verse 18. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Sexual sin, more than all other sins, has the power to corrupt because God has designed sex for a powerful uniting purpose, to bring two people together as one, physically, emotionally, spiritually, as one flesh. And when the uniting act takes place outside of that publicly covenanted relationship between a man and wife, something that was designed to build a deep intimacy to show a permanent self-commitment is devalued. It becomes a way to pass the time. It diminishes our humanity and the humanity of others even as it disfigures the truth about God that it was meant to reflect. But when we honor God with our bodies, by using them the way he intended, it leads to our flourishing. Because you're, you're going with the brain of what you've been created for, rather than against it. You're acting according to the purpose that you've been made for. And as Christians, we have even more powerful motives for the way that we live. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I guess as 
Hong Kongers, we know that something is as valuable as what somebody else will pay for it, don't we? Uh, the, the old furniture in your house, it could be junk or it could be a brilliant antique. The only difference is what somebody else will pay for it. And as Christians, we know our value because we know the price that God was willing to pay for us, for our bodies. Christ purchased us at the cost of his own blood. He gave his body as a sacrifice for your body and for mine. To cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness, to take whatever uh, idolatry and sexual immorality is, has been in our lives, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to make us able to, to serve him and to honor him. And when we put our faith in Christ, he gives us a Holy Spirit as a down payment, saying, you're going to receive the full inheritance of heaven. All the riches that God can offer you are yours, and the Holy Spirit's the down payment. And if God has paid that kind of price for you and for me, then we are his. I am not my own. So the things I do with my body, well, I should, be, I should be doing them as one borrowing somebody else's property. How do you drive a car that you've borrowed from somebody as opposed to the one you own? It's a bit different, right? You're a bit more tentative as you swing into the, the parking spots. It's a bit uh, less reckless as you careen down the highway because it's, it belongs to somebody else, and my body belongs to Christ. He has purchased it. And if you're a Christian, your body does as well. It's Christ. Therefore, as Paul has said elsewhere, we offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. That's our holy and acceptable worship to God. So wherever you have been, whatever you have done, we don't need to feel shame. Christ knows, Christ forgives, Christ has paid the cost, so you belong to him. Honor him with your bodies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to pay that great cost of sending your son to die for us. Thank you that our bodies belong to you and that you will see that they are raised to eternal life. Please help us to live as ones that honor you in all that we, we think and say and do and in the way we treat others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.